Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'm really pleased that you joined us today because we're finishing up our third part of a three-part series where we're talking about the Eightfold Path in its three distinct sections or categories. We've already discussed the first category, which is wisdom, talking about right view and right intention. And we've spoken about the moral conduct, which is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Today, we're going to be talking about the mental discipline, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. We're going to be diving into these three aspects of the path to enlightenment and helping you to understand how to practice it in your daily life. So just as a bit of a recap, right view is all about accepting responsibility for your emotions, for the feelings, understanding those three universal truths, the Four Noble Truths about how all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness. We cause our own discontentedness because of this craving, desire, attachment for things to be permanent when everything's impermanent. Then we can eliminate this discontentedness by eliminating craving, desire, attachment. So we can eliminate it through training the mind to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment. And then that fourth noble truth is all about the path that leads to enlightenment is the Eightfold Path. And establishing right view involves understanding this intellectually, reflecting on this, and then practicing it in daily life. And if you haven't seen that talk that was two weeks ago, I suggest you go to our YouTube channel and pull that up and take a look at that because in order to learn and progress in Gautama Buddha's teachings, you would need to understand and establish right view so that you can then build everything else on top of that. Because right view teaches us that we are solely responsible for our own discontent feelings and we actually create them in the mind ourselves. And because we're the ones who are creating these discontent feelings, we can also eradicate them as well. We can train the mind to eliminate them. But you need more detail and more understanding of that, which you'll find in that talk. Right intention is all about harmlessness, about having the intention to let things go and practicing non-ill will or harmlessness. And that's really important because all the teachings on the AFO path are all about the natural law of gamma and whatever we're doing in the world is going to come back to us. So by us practicing harmlessness and not putting harm into the world, then harm won't come back to us. And this is described as harmlessness under right intention. 
then having that intention and having the right view that we are causing our own discontentedness and interested to not cause harm in the world, then we start looking at right speech, which starts the moral conduct. And the Buddha talks about the five factors of well-spoken speech, speaking at the right time, what we say is true, we speak gently, what we say is beneficial, we speak with a mind of loving kindness without blame. And I went into a lot of detail in what that means and how that looks like in daily life. And then we go into right action, which is all about the bodily actions and not causing harm with our bodily actions through things like killing or stealing, sexual misconduct, things like taking substances that cause heedlessness, gambling and things like this all cause harm with our bodily actions. And if we cause harm with our bodily actions and that harm is going to come back to us. And then lastly, in the moral conduct, we talked about right livelihood, which is about how we sustain our life on this planet and in this existence. We need to do something in order to sustain our life and ensuring that we don't cause harm through our livelihood. And the Buddha gave five wrong livelihoods that cause harm. If we sell weapons, if we sell living beings, if we sell meat, if we sell substances that cause heedlessness, if we sell poisons, then we're going to be causing harm in the world through these livelihoods. Therefore, harm is going to come to us. And I gave very specific guidance on those type of harms that could potentially come about. So you can go back and look at that talk from a week ago. And you can also access this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, where these are described very closely in Chapter 5 under the Eightfold Path. And chapter four describes right view or the Four Noble Truths, starting with the three universal truths. So you can download this for free and gain access to the teachings and other talks that I've done regarding those. But today is all about these last three steps of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So just moving into the slides that we have prepared for today's talk, this is the Eightfold Path that we've been discussing over the last two sessions and now the third, where we're laying out for you step by step this life practice that the Buddha shared with us in the eight distinct steps. It's very important to learn these in detail, intellectually, reflect on them, and then practice them, bringing your practice closer and closer and closer to these steps of the Eightfold Path. This path, it works where you're actually learning and practicing all of it at the same time. It's not a path where you need to master step one before you move into step two. You actually learn all of it and progress, kind of dialing in each one of these more and more as you progress. So if you think of the Buddhist teachings as like a ceiling, that would be the ideal way for a human being to practice as an enlightened being, what you're doing in your life practice is as you're learning and implementing these teachings more and more and more, you're getting closer and closer and closer to that ideal. But of course, you're going to take steps backwards and then you're going to move up and you're going to take steps backwards and you're going to move up and you're just gradually progressing in your learning and in your development of this Eightfold Path in your daily life. It's not just intellectual learning. It's actually moving it into practice 
where it actually changes the condition of the mind. So in order for you to experience enlightenment, you need to actually practice the teachings, not believing the teachings, not thinking that they are be good for you, not believing what the Buddha said out of faith, but really committing and dedicating yourself to learning and practicing over an extended period of time where you're gradually kind of dripping these teachings in over multiple classes, over multiple sit-downs with books or videos or podcasts, over multiple meditation sessions, over multiple private talks with a teacher perhaps to seek guidance. You're gradually progressing as you bring more and more of the teachings into the mind and then you're able to practice them more and more. So today we're moving into these three aspects of mental discipline, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And just kind of as a very high level summary, what I would share as just kind of a high level overview of what these three steps are is right effort is taking initiative to eliminate unwholesome aspects of the mind and cultivate wholesome qualities of the mind. And we're going to talk about this in detail using the Buddha's words like we've done before, and then using words that I would share and even some examples of what right effort is. In general, you can think of right mindfulness as awareness of mind. And that's a really good way to just kind of summarize it and think of it on a very basic level is just having awareness of the mind, having awareness of the feelings and the various aspects that are in the mind. And we're going to break that down into more detail, talking about the four foundations of mindfulness. And then there's right concentration, which you can think of as the practice of meditation, developing singleness of mind through experiencing the jhanas. And the meditations that the Buddha taught are breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. There's a few other specialized meditations that the Buddha taught as well, but these are the two that are needed by all people as a primary way of addressing the core problems that the Buddha discovered about the unenlightened mind. So this is kind of a summary and overview, but now let's go into the very specifics of what the Buddha taught for each one of these various components that we're discussing today, starting with right effort. Here, let's talk about right effort and using the Buddha's words, I'll just read this for you, which is part of his Eightfold Path. In what, monks, is right effort? Here, monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. This is right effort. 
Now we're going to go into details and break this down because it's just a lot of text in one place. But here you can see how I summarize this as being able to take initiative to eliminate certain unwholesome aspects of the mind and then cultivate certain wholesome qualities in the mind. But now let's kind of bring it into what we would discuss in terms of how to break this down step by step, which is what I've provided in the book and what I provide here for you and some examples that we're going to discuss. Right effort has four aspects to it. The Buddha called these the four right strivings, that you're striving through right effort to be able to practice this on a daily basis, a moment by moment basis. The first part of right effort is to prevent unwholesome mental states that have not yet arisen from arising in the mind. Now, let me give you an example of this. I would confidently share that I would think most of us have never ever had the aspect of the mind of thinking of killing a human being, right? That this is something that has not entered your mind. So this would be to prevent this from arising in the mind. So this unwholesome mental state, this aspect, this action of killing a human being is not something that's currently in the mind. So this aspect of right effort is to not allow that to come into the mind, to prevent the unwholesome mental state of killing another human being to actually come into the mind. That would be the first aspect of right effort. Anything that is unwholesome that's not currently in the mind, don't allow it to come into the mind. Prevent it from coming into the mind. The second aspect of right effort is to abandon any unwholesome mental states that have arisen in the mind. So if you have certain unwholesome mental states that are in the mind now and you're aware of those, then this part of right effort is to work to abandon those and eliminate them from the mind. And a couple of examples might be if you or you have experienced ever uh, having craving for sexual contact outside of a currently existing relationship that you have. If you have a certain relationship now and you've observed other people around you and the mind is thought like, aha, that would be interesting to pursue a relationship with that person. And even though I've currently got a relationship, well, what the Buddha is teaching you here is to apply the right effort to abandon that unwholesome mental state because if you've learned through his teachings and through his path that having sexual contact with somebody outside of your current relationship would cause harm to your current relationship as well as you because any harm that you cause is going to be returned to you you knowing that and having that wisdom of the moral conduct then here with right effort if that craving arises to have sexual contact outside of an existing relationship, then you need to abandon that thought. You need to abandon that unwholesome mental state because you know it's going to cause harm. So that would be one potential example of how to apply abandoning any unwholesome mental states that have arisen in the mind. Another example might be 
is if you're in your daily life and some anger or frustration starts to arise and you can feel it. You can feel it in the body. You can notice it in the mind that anger or frustration or irritation has arisen and you know that this is an unwholesome mental state. You know that as long as the mind's angered, frustrated or irritated, it's going to create unwholesome decisions for you. You're going to end up creating unwholesome decisions through this anger, frustration, and irritation. Therefore, what the Buddha is teaching you as right effort is to abandon this. So when you observe that there's this anger, frustration, irritation in the mind, then you take the effort, noticing that this is an unwholesome mental state, to abandon it and eliminate it from the mind. So these first two, the first one is to prevent any unwholesome mental states from coming into the mind that aren't yet currently there. And the second one is any unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind or as you observe them arising in the mind, then apply the effort to abandon those unwholesome mental states. And you'll learn what is unwholesome versus wholesome as you get more and more wisdom on this path. The third aspect of right effort is to produce any unarisen wholesome mental qualities to arise in the mind. So if there's certain mental qualities or certain wholesome states that have not yet arisen in the mind, then you apply effort to arise them in the mind. So let's just say that you knew that you're somewhat selfish, that you don't really practice generosity much in the world, then if you observe this and you know that you tend to hold on to things very tightly, then what this particular part of right effort is about is when you identify that and you see that you tend to be somewhat of a selfish person perhaps, or you don't maybe share as generously as you would like to, then when you identify that, then you take the effort to now arise this wholesome mental state in the mind, that you start practicing generosity as a way to eradicate this selfishness. And generosity is also really good because it helps to eradicate craving and desire as well. So if you observe this in the mind and you know this about the mind, then you will then take action through right effort to then practice generosity. And we can similarly say the same thing about compassion, for example. Compassion is to have concern for the misfortune of other beings. So if you find yourself being somewhat indifferent to the issues of other beings, if you kind of look down on people that they're having a hard time, if you think, well, you know, so be it, you know, that's them, you know, I'm not concerned about it whatsoever, you know, and you just kind of go on throughout your life without really having any concern for the misfortune of others, then if you know that about your mind and that's how your mind currently functions, then what you would do in order to apply right effort is you would then actively work to produce compassion in the mind because this is an unarisen, wholesome mental state and you would like to apply effort to produce this in the mind because this compassion and concern for others' misfortune is really helpful and beneficial for your practice, right? 
And then the fourth aspect of right effort is to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not allowing them to fade away and work to increase their growth in the mind. So this is all about wholesome mental states that currently exist in the mind and mental states that currently exist in the mind that are wholesome, you would then know that, okay, I'm practicing loving kindness and I'm, I feel that I'm practicing this and I'm going to encourage this. I'm going to support this. I'm not gonna allow this to fade. I'm gonna work to grow the loving kindness that I practice because loving kindness is all about active goodwill towards other beings. So being polite, being kind, being friendly, being respectful to all beings in all situations. And wherever you are with that now, if this is a wholesome quality that you have and that it's in the mind, what the Buddha is saying is part of right effort is this wholesome quality, don't allow that to fade. Apply effort and work to increase the growth of this loving kindness in the mind because that's going to be beneficial for your practice. And similarly, sympathetic joy is having joy for other success. It's essentially the opposite of jealousy. If someone was jealous, they see somebody else being successful in one way or another, getting a new house, a new boyfriend, girlfriend, a new job, a promotion, having kids or children, and maybe that person really wants children, but they can't for some reason or any number of things that the mind can become jealous of, sympathetic joy is just the opposite of that and it eradicates jealousy. So if you observe that you do have this genuine interest and this joy when you see others being successful and you have this joy about others' success and that's currently in the mind, then you would not allow that to fade you would work to grow that and improve that in all situations where you see people being successful in any number of different things even in this path if you see somebody practicing meditation and they're learning and understanding the teachings really well but you're maybe struggling a little bit more than them rather than be jealous that somebody else is maybe understanding the teachings more readily than you then what the Buddha is saying here is, no, have joy, right? Have joy that this other person is meeting success in various parts of their life. And this will help to eradicate jealousy. So these are the four aspects of right effort. Preventing any unwholesome states from arising. Abandon any unwholesome states that are already in the mind. Produce any wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen in the mind, working and applying effort to arise these wholesome mental states, and then any mental states that have arisen already in the mind, then you work to support them, encourage them, and help them to grow, not allowing them to feed. And what aspect of these that you need to work on is going to be different for each person. These are just kind of some examples that I've, you know, drawn out for you to help you see, but your individual aspects of what you need to work on is going to be different versus somebody else. And this is why this is an independent journey and there is no judgment of 
where other people are in the path versus you because everybody's working on different things and different aspects of the path. But let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about right effort and how this might apply to certain things that it is that you're facing. If you would like to ask a question, you can put that in the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or if you're in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically. Our moderators will either unmute you in Zoom, or if you put a question into any of the comment sections of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, then our moderators will be sure they get asked during the class. Hi, David. I was wondering, are there any specific ways in which we can cultivate right effort? It comes with initiative. You have to have the initiative to really take the effort. And one of the things that you're going to see about this mental discipline is how these individual steps really work together because you really wouldn't be able to apply right effort without right mindfulness. You'll need right mindfulness when we start talking about right mindfulness. Without right mindfulness, you would never actually be able to apply right effort. And there's some of that similarity in the other parts of the path too, because without right view and right intention, you really wouldn't be able to practice right speech, right action, and right livelihood either. So even though you don't master one step before you go to the next, these steps are somewhat intertwined that some of these steps support you in practicing the other steps. So the way to bring right effort into your life more is to ensure you have the effort and you take the initiative and have the energy to apply it in daily life and right effort is really dependent on right mindfulness which is what we'll talk about next and then another way does it require right effort in order to be mindful does it require right effort in order to be mindful yes must one use right effort to essentially cultivate mindfulness yes that's a hundred percent true because mindfulness would be a wholesome mental quality so if you know that you don't yet have mindfulness, then you would then need to do the third aspect of right effort, which is produce this unarisen wholesome mental state to arise in the mind. Or if you have some mindfulness, but it's not really fully developed yet, then that means you need to apply the fourth step, which is maintaining this wholesome mental state that has arisen of mindfulness and not allow it to fade and work to increase its growth. And that's where right concentration comes in. So these three steps at the end of the Eightfold Path are really very much intertwined, even more so than the other five steps that we've discussed so far. Yeah, that's very interesting to see, David. We have a question on Zooms. Judith wants to know, can right effort feel effortless? It can as you develop it more and more. When you first start, it's a lot of work, right? Because there are certain things that are unwholesome that you need to prevent from arising that the mind maybe has identified or there might be certain unwholesome qualities in the mind that you need to actively work to eliminate and there's a lot of work there. And conversely, on the wholesome side, there are certain wholesome qualities that you need to identify and you need to learn in order to arise these in the mind. So it is a lot of work when you first get started. I mean, one aspect of that we could consider to be right effort 
but it's really part of the seven factors of enlightenment is investigating the teachings of the Buddha. You would never actually be able to even get to right effort if you didn't take the effort to investigate the teachings and learn what are the unwholesome qualities and what are the wholesome qualities. So initially, when you first get going on this path and for a good long while, there's a lot of effort and it can feel like a lot of work sometimes. And that's where sometimes, you know, you start working on this really closely and you you get really busy and then maybe you kind of take a little break for a week or two, but then you don't allow the mind to become complacent and you kind of get going with your studies again, right? So it will get smoother as you progress more and more. And then eventually it gets to the point where what I describe as its first nature, or you're saying effortless, right? Where eventually you've done this so much that you've eradicated all this unwholesomeness out of the mind and you've arisen all the wholesome qualities in the mind and you're constantly supporting them and it becomes effortless or first nature for you and you don't even have to think about it because the mind is just always doing it all the time. And I also describe this like upgrading the operating system in the mind that, you know, initially when you go through this upgrade, you know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort to upgrade this operating system of the mind. And then as you're working with this new operating system and trying to figure out how to use it, it can be quite challenging. But then after a while, it becomes effortless and really easy. You can think about this like when they do Facebook upgrades or when they do upgrades to operating systems on the computer. For the first couple of weeks, you're trying to figure out how to do things and how to get comfortable with doing certain tasks that you did before in this new operating system. But once you do, you're like, ah, this is actually easier than the way I used to do it before. And you actually really appreciate this new upgrade of Facebook, for example, or this new upgrade of some computer system that you're working on. And the mind is the same way. And it's not a operating system or it's not Facebook where you can learn it in a week or two or three. The Buddha's path in this path to enlightenment, it takes multiple months and years to progress on it. And I think of it like a home improvement project. It's like this home improvement project that you're constantly working on for multiple months and years until you really get to a point where it just becomes effortless, as you say. And it just takes work to get there. And that gradual training is what's going to help you to get there. Thanks, David. Those are all the questions we have for now. All right. Well, let's look at right mindfulness then, because this is the seventh step of the Eightfold Path. And once again, we'll start out with the Buddha's words, and then I will bring it into some language that we can all talk about and discuss and you guys can ask questions on. Here's the Buddha's words on the Eightfold Path. In what, monks, is right mindfulness? Here, monks, a monk resides contemplating body as body, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world, He resides contemplating feelings as feelings, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful. Having put aside hankering and fretting for the world, he resides contemplating mind as mind, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful, 
having put aside hankering and fretting for the world, he resides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. This is called right mindfulness. Okay, so a couple of things here before we move on to what I actually prepared to talk about is here what he's referring to is he's talking about body as body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, mind objects as mind objects. These are what we call the four foundations of mindfulness. Okay, and we're going to talk about those in a moment. We talked about them when we discussed the five hindrances about three or four weeks ago. But we're going to go into that again and talk about it some more as well, just to kind of be another way for you guys to talk about it in gradual training to help you understand the four foundations of mindfulness. But another thing that he talks about here that you don't see too many other places in his teachings, but which is really important, which is he says, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. Okay, this is how in the unenlightened mind, we go around and we complain and we worry about the world and we worry about what everyone else is doing and how the world functions. We don't see that it's just us not understanding the world. That is the problem. When we're in the unenlightened state and off this path, we actually think that the problem is the world. We actually think that all these people are causing us to be angry and frustrated. We think that all these things that are happening in the world is the problem, but that's actually not the problem because everything in the world is happening and functioning based on the natural laws of existence. The real problem is, is that the unenlightened mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It doesn't understand these natural laws like impermanence and discontentedness, non-self. It doesn't understand things like the natural law of gamma. It doesn't understand right view and all of these other teachings. So therefore, we go around in the unenlightened state hankering and fretting or complaining about the world, thinking that the world is the problem. So part of right mindfulness and becoming aware of the mind is to look inward, is to look at your mind, looking for what is the problem in your mind, right? And taking that real ownership to look inward rather than look outward and complain about the world. So one aspect of right mindfulness is to be able to look inward at the mind itself and trying to uncover what are the challenges and what are the things that you're facing in the mind that need to be addressed. It's not the outside world that's the problem. It's not all these external things. It's not the fact that your mom, dad, brother, sister, wife, husband, children, boyfriend, girlfriend, boss, coworkers aren't doing what you want them to do. That's not the problem. The problem is that your mind isn't understanding these natural laws of existence. And by stop complaining about the world and all the things that everyone else is doing wrong, so to speak, and look inward, you're now better prepared to be able to arise this wholesome quality of mindfulness or awareness of mind. So let's go to the next slide where I share with you the four foundations of mindfulness, 
while also just helping you to understand generally to think about awareness of the mind. But this awareness of mind that I talk about in the book, Developing a Life Practice, it actually breaks down into four individual aspects of awareness. And we call this the four foundations of mindfulness. And let me describe what they are, and then I'll kind of give you an example to help you understand them. This aspect that the Buddha talks about body as body. What he's talking about here is observing and having awareness of bodily sensations. Okay, the, the sensations that we have in the body. You know, like when anger starts to arise, you can kind of feel the bodily sensations in the body if you have awareness of mind. If you've ever felt that tingling sensation prior to the mind being enraged or before it got frustrated or irritated, there's going to be certain bodily sensations. And the mind being aware of that and noticing that, then you can apply right effort to cut it off right there if you can, right? So having awareness of mind and these bodily sensations will actually help you to eradicate discontentedness because you can catch it very early on before it's really invaded the mind. Because then what happens is feelings as feelings. What happens is now it turns into feelings in the mind. So what the Buddha talks about is here saying, having observing or awareness of the feelings, that now it's not just this bodily sensation, I didn't catch it quick enough, and now it's turning into feelings in the mind, where now I'm starting to have anger or frustration in the mind. Right. And now there's a certain level of awareness there that it's now feelings. Then when he talks about mind as mind, what he's talking about is observing and having awareness of the condition, the overall condition of the mind, because these bodily sensations, these feelings that now start to come into the mind can actually change the condition of the mind where now for many hours or a day or so, the mind can have this condition of anger based on a particular situation that occurred. And this condition of anger is a more pervasive thing that happens over multiple hours or days, right? Then he talks about mind objects as mind objects, and we also sometimes refer to those as mental objects, as mental objects, having observing and awareness of mental objects. Now, a mental object in this case would be ill will. That if I was the type of person who wasn't aware of these things and I haven't cultivated mindfulness and I'm not on this path, I can be having all these bodily sensations in the body of all this anger arising. I don't catch it. It comes into the mind. I start having feelings around that over and over and over become a very angry person because the condition of the mind now becomes conditioned on these feelings and there starts to be this anger in the mind all the time. It becomes pervasive. And now there's this mental object of ill will that is in the mind. And now you need to eradicate that ill will and remove it from the mind because it's now an object. It's like a container of ill will. It's more firmly rooted and now it's multiple years that the mind has been conditioned through 
all of these various things that have happened. Because if you think about when a child is born, when we were all born as a new infant, we didn't have ill will in our mind, right? This is why when babies are born, you know, after they get going, you know, they're smiling, they're giggling, they're laughing, they're playing, right? They don't have ill will. A, a baby's not interested in harming anyone, right? A baby doesn't typically slap people and hurt people and stomp on people when we're infants, right? Because our mind is fairly unconditioned at that point. Even though there are certain aspects of the mind that is still unenlightened, there's still certain conditions or mental objects that haven't formed yet. But over the course of our life as we grow, two years old, four years old, 10 years old, 15, 20, 30, however old we end up becoming right now, through the mind not having awareness of these bodily sensations, of these feelings, of how those feelings are creating certain conditions in the mind, we form these mental objects that now exist in the mind and now we start functioning through these mental objects which causes harm in the world and what being on this path is all about and cultivating this awareness of mind is to be aware and having the observational objective inward looking at the mind and observing what aspects of the mind are there what mental objects are there and what do I need to do to remedy these? So the Buddhist teachings are going to share with you what these feelings are, what the condition of the mind is, what these mental objects are, and he's going to give you the solutions of how to unravel all of this conditioning that we've experienced from all of our previous lives and including this life as well that whatever the condition of our mind is right now at this point in time, whatever mental objects that we have at this point in time, the Buddha is explaining that to you through his teachings and giving you the remedy of how to unravel all of that to almost like you're getting back to a child's mind again, where, of course, you'll be more mature, you'll be more wise, you'll have better functioning, but you get back to that pure mind where you've purified the mind from all of this unwholesome conditioning that has occurred over the course of many lifetimes in this life as well. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about right mindfulness and how this plays out in our daily life. You can, again, put your comments in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand and the moderators will get your questions asked during the class. Is mindfulness something, David, that as we begin our journey on the path that we cultivate through meditation? Yes, and that's the next step, James. You're, you're always on the next step, which is good. You're aware of that, right? So in order to get to mindfulness, if we look at right effort, right? We know right effort is to produce any wholesome quality that hasn't arisen yet or if there's a bit of mindfulness there, but you just haven't really fully cultivated and perfected it, then it's supporting, encouraging, not allowing it to fade and helping it to grow. So breathing mindfulness meditation, which is part of the next step under right concentration, one of the things that we're doing in that meditation is we're cultivating awareness of mind. 
we're cultivating this mindfulness through all of our meditation sessions. And this is why during meditation, you can have certain bodily sensations that occur during meditation and the mind recognizing that as a bodily sensation and having the awareness of certain feelings that are in the mind, right? And what we're doing in breathing mindfulness meditation is we're not holding on to this. We're not attaching to it. We're not grasping it. We're not allowing it to stay in the mind. We're letting it go or as the Buddha said, cutting it off and bringing the mind back to the breath. So we're eradicating this unwholesome aspect of the mind, which is craving, desire, attachment. And we're working to arise or cultivate this awareness of mind through breathing mindfulness meditation. But then you need to practice it in daily life. You can't just cultivate it in meditation only. You've got to bring it with you in daily life so that when you're driving down the road, for example, and somebody cuts you off and you feel that bit of anger, you've got to have awareness. Aha, nope, I'm not going there today. Let that be. And that would be the application of right mindfulness that you are aware of the anger starting to arise. And then it's an application of right effort where you're cutting it off and saying, nope, I'm not going to get angry today. Be well. May you be well. And just allow that person to go ahead and drive and you're safe. They cut you off, but at least you're safe and they're now headed into the horizon, right? You don't need to focus and get angry. It's not helping you to get angry in this situation. There's no benefit that's going to come out of it. So by you having awareness of mind and observing either the bodily sensations and cutting it off there or observing the feelings that are starting to come into the mind and cutting it off there, now it won't affect the condition of the mind that you can show up to work or wherever you're going and you won't have this condition of anger and you won't walk in and start being grumpy and hostile to your coworkers when it was really just you getting angry because of somebody cutting you off. So by you observing and having this mindfulness and then taking right effort, you can then ensure that you're not causing any unwholesome results at your workplace, for example, by going in there and now speaking or having actions in a way that's going to cause harm to others just because your mind wasn't able to eliminate this anger. So this is how these teachings that you work with them skillfully and now you apply them in daily life to ensure that the mind doesn't get polluted with these unwholesome qualities and you can arise these wholesome qualities and practice them more and more and more in all of the various relationships day by day, moment by moment. I was wondering, is non-self a critical aspect of mindfulness in that we understand, for instance, body as body and feelings as feelings, yet without identifying with them? Right. So if you're aware what non-self is, and we talked about that a little bit, back two weeks ago, if you're aware of what non-self is, that it's this interest for the unenlightened mind to falsely identify this physical body as the self, as the self-image, or the image of the self, or the way that the unenlightened mind looks at this self-image or this body as being the self if you're aware of that and you're aware that because the unenlightened mind holds that 
that it's going to be defensive and it's going to try to defend itself and it's also going to become fearful. If you're aware of what non-self is and you're aware of the problems that it causes, then if you have right mindfulness, when those certain bodily sensations or feelings arise in the mind, then you can be aware of it through right mindfulness and then apply effort to cut that off and let it go. So you might actually consider, even though we call it a universal truth, you could almost consider non-self like a mental object. It's a mental object that's in the mind and that needs to be eradicated from the mind through various practices, but you would never be able to eradicate it if you weren't aware of what it is understand the problems that it causes and then have the mindfulness that when it kind of raises its head and you become defensive because of your self-image or anything related to the self if you weren't aware of it through mindfulness then you also wouldn't be able to cut it off so mindfulness and then applying the effort to cut it off when you see it arising is going to help you ultimately eradicate it along with a lot of other practices as well. Okay, David, that seems to be all the questions we have at this moment. Okay, so now let's go into right concentration, which is a bit more involved, but we have a lot to talk about here in terms of right concentration, and we'll spend our time doing this as we get going in the class here. So let's use the Buddha's words first, and then we will break it down into language that I can share with you to help you understand it further. In what monks is right concentration? Here, a monk detached from central desires, detached from unwholesome mental states, enters and remains in the first jhana. We're going to talk about what jhanas are. Which is with thinking and pondering, born of detachment, filled with delight and happiness, and with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and remains in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, born of concentration, filled with delight and happiness, and with the fading away of delight remains imperturbable. I've put the definition in here for you guys, which is unable to be upset or excited, a mind that's calm and serene. Okay, so let me just read that line again. And with the fading away of delight remaining imperturbable, mindful and clearly aware, he experiences in himself the joy of which the noble ones say, Peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness. He enters the third jhana, and having given up pleasure and pain, and with the disappearance of former gladness and sadness, he enters and remains in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, impurified by equanimity and mindfulness. This is called right concentration okay so let's go through a couple of definitions here before we move to the next slide and help you understand what the buddha is sharing 
You guys understand what mindfulness is now, awareness of mind. So here he's referencing awareness of mind as being part of right concentration because you would never be able to acquire right concentration without right mindfulness. But he also talks about equanimity here. What equanimity is, is it's an evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations. It's a calmness, an evenness of temper, even in difficult situations, okay? There's another aspect to equanimity too, which is where you're treating all beings equally and fairly. But for the purposes of right concentration, think of equanimity as this evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations where something happens difficult in your life, things are challenging, things are happening, but you maintain your equanimity, your calmness, your composure, your serenity of mind, okay? So that's what equanimity is. What a jhana is, is jhana is a Pali word because remember, these teachings are coming out of the Pali canon, which was written in Pali language, and we've translated the vast majority of those words into English, but there's a few words that don't have just like a one-word translation, like gamma is one of those. It takes multiple words to explain what is gamma. The same thing with a jhana. It takes multiple words to explain what a jhana is, so we just continue to use this word jhana and then help you understand what it means. What a jhana is, is we call it a meditative absorption. So right concentration is all about meditation, which is what I'm going to share with you in a moment. But in order to acquire this jhana, there has to be a lot of meditation along with a lot of other practices to kind of absorb into the mind. The mind needs to absorb this meditation. And then having done so, the mind then gets to a state of deep or subtle concentration. You can think of it as the mind being relaxed and calm, yet alert and attentive. So the mind is relaxed and calm, but yet it's alert and attentive, right? You've probably experienced a very alert and attentive mind where you had like really high energy and it was like, go, 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 go. Yeah, yeah, I'm alert now, I'm alert now. Like maybe think about after you've drank a lot of caffeine or something, right? Like the mind becomes very alert and attentive, but it's very high energy. What a jhana is, and after you've developed these practices a lot to get to the point where you're reaching the jhanas, the mind's going to be relaxed and calm yet it's going to be alert and attentive, right? So this is a various stages. There's four stages of the jhanas that as the mind starts to understand the three universal truths, the four noble truths to establish right view, and it starts practicing right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and what right concentration is all about is practicing meditation, which we'll talk about, practicing meditation on a daily basis as all of these things are coming together and you're gradually more and more learning these teachings, reflecting on them, applying them in practice, and the condition of the mind is changing through your practice of these teachings, the mind slowly starts moving into these jhanas. 
After the jhanas are the four stages of enlightenment, but you can think of the four jhanas as individual kind of phases that the mind goes through prior to getting into the four stages of enlightenment. These four jhanas are an indication that everything's starting to come together, the mind starting to put together all of these teachings of the Buddha, the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the practices of meditation and everything that goes on there. The mind is starting to be deeply changed by these teachings and your practice of these teachings. And you start experiencing these jhanas. And each jhana has certain attributes or certain qualities associated with it that you can actually observe as the mind is moving through these jhanas, you can actually see, aha, there it is. There's the first jhana, and there's the second, and there's the third, and there's the fourth. And taking all of those words from the Buddha and bringing it down into kind of a summary form, I've stripped out a lot of the language to help you see very clearly what are these four jhanas. So discussing this, let's look at the first jhana. The first jhana, having put together the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, which includes meditation. And this practitioner is doing this for many months, perhaps years. Then the mind starts to experience this first jhana, which is going to be this absorption of meditation in a more relaxed yet attentive mind. And it's almost like night and day between the completely unenlightened mind that is off this path to now you've reached the first jhana or even from the time where you're on the path and learning the path and progressing on the path to reaching the first jhana some people feels almost like a switch has been flipped like someone's flipped a switch because it's that different between not being in the jhanas to actually experiencing this first jhana. It can almost be like a flip of a switch. And this is where, unfortunately, some people think that that is enlightenment. People think when they reach to this first jhana that, aha, now I'm enlightened, right? Because if you feel that the Buddha sat down under a tree, he sat in meditation, and then, boom, he attained enlightenment, then if you experience, and not everyone does, but if you experience this bit of a light switch flipping when the mind moves into the first jhana, you might think that you're actually enlightened at that point because there's such a difference in the condition of the mind. But you're not enlightened yet. The enlightenment doesn't happen like a flip of a switch. It's a gradual progression. The first jhana is essentially an indication that things are headed in the right direction and you're starting to put things together in a good way. And you might experience an enormous amount of bliss or here I describe it and the Buddha describes it as filled with delight and joy, right? And this is a lot of happiness potentially here. And some people describe it as bliss or ultimate bliss. So if you think of enlightenment as ultimate bliss when you 
think of it that way, and if you think that the Buddha sat down, meditated, and a f switch flipped, and he attained enlightenment, that's what the first jhana is, where people can oftentimes feel this flip of a switch and this ultimate bliss. And this is where some people are misled, thinking that they've attained enlightenment, when in fact they've really only hit this first jhana, which is good. It's great. It's wonderful. But it's not the destination. And from this first jhana, you can actually regress. You can actually fall out of this first jhana as well. The mind typically will get kind of a look at this first jhana and it will start kind of getting these glimpses of it before the mind moves fully into the first jhana. Or it can be this flip of a switch where like, boom, now the mind goes into the first jhana. It can happen either way. That flip of the switch is almost a bit dangerous if somebody thinks that, that that's how the Buddha attained enlightenment and that enlightenment is this ultimate bliss, then people can think and assume that they're actually enlightened at that point. But it's a dangerous thing to think of as you being enlightened. It's even a dangerous thing to think of like, aha, wow, look at me, I've got into the jhanas. Because now when the ego and the arrogance comes in, this is where the mind can actually regress. So I'm going to share with you what each one of these jhanas are and explain it in detail. But I would like to make sure you understand that this is only for personal development purposes only. It's only for you to help you understand as the mind is progressing and that things are progressing and working in the right direction. You can talk about these jhanas with your teacher and where what you're experiencing and what you think you might be experiencing. But for you to go out and talk to other people about, wow, guess what? Last night I got into the first jhana or over the last month, I've really been experiencing the first jhana and it's wonderful that I finally gotten here. This is just ego, pride and arrogance. There's no reason for you to go out and discuss what you feel that you've attained with other people. All of this attainment of the jhanas in the four stages of enlightenment is just for your personal development so that you can kind of have this personal map and kind of chart your way on this path to complete enlightenment. Because that's the goal is for everyone to get to arahantship or enlightenment. And if you get very egotistical or you get very prideful of having moved into these jhanas, that's going to actually inhibit your growth. Or if you get into these jhanas and you start becoming overly obsessed about what the jhanas are and trying to track, am I in the second jhana or am I in the third jhana? Where am I? Because now the craving kicks in that you're craving to be in a third jhana. And now when the craving kicks in, the mind can regress and go backwards, right? So what I'm going to share with you here is only for your understanding and kind of providing you this map that you can work with your teacher to now progress through these jhanas and actually get into the stages of enlightenment. Because once you get into the first stage of enlightenment, the mind will not regress from there. The mind will only go forward from there. But if you get bogged down in these jhanas because they feel so blissful 
and there's so much happiness there and you feel so wonderful in these jhanas if the ego kicks in or if craving kicks in or if pride kicks in or these other kind of unwholesome mental qualities kick in you're going to get bogged down in these jhanas and potentially go backwards as well so you've got to just stay focused on the goal and allow the mind to be unaffected by this progress that you're experiencing where you're experiencing this deep calmness this relaxed mind that is attentive but yet alert so this first jhana the buddha describes it as in order to be there a person would need to be detached from sense desires detached means separated from right at this point you haven't eliminated the central desires that doesn't happen until you get to the third stage of enlightenment but in the first jhana a being would be separated and be able to see that these sense desires are in fact causing challenges in the mind that the six senses are actually longing with craving or having central desire through these six sense bases or these six sense faculties and in the first jhana there starts to be this separation where the mind starts pulling back from the central desires the mind still has central desires but it starts to pull it back from them recognizing the danger and allowing the mind to crave through the sense faculties okay so that first aspect of the jhana first jhana is being separated from central desires and being able to see the danger in these central desires and then also being detached from unwholesome mental states there's still going to be unwholesome mental states in the mind when you're in the first jhana but the mind is going to start separating itself from these unwholesome mental states because you've done all this work to understand the eightfold path in its entirety and you've been working at it and starting to remove more and more of wrong intention more and more of wrong speech and wrong action and all of these other things you're practicing more of the right teachings and you're starting to have the wisdom and understand that wisdom very deeply that now you're starting to separate yourself and identifying these unwholesome qualities and knowing that these are things that you need to work on they're still there in the mind but you're starting to separate yourself from them starting to distance yourself from these central desires and from these unwholesome mental states and because of this and all this work that you're doing the mind has what's called thinking and pondering what this is is this is the mind has been learning these teachings very well month over month over month been developing this meditation practice and now each thing that you encounter each situation that you encounter the mind kind of thinks and ponders how do i apply these teachings of the buddha to this new situation that i'm encountering where in the past when you were off the path or you were just starting the path you were just going through life thinking that everyone else was the problem just like i was going through life thinking that everyone else was the problem and we just didn't know what we didn't know but now because you've been learning the teachings and you've been progressing on this path and you're moving into this first jhana there's still this thinking and pondering 
where the mind now, instead of haphazardly walking through life and tromping on all the various situations and tromping on the various people that might be involved in the various situations like we might have done earlier in our life, now we're starting to think and we're starting to ponder how can we practice these teachings in this situation and how can we better our practice in this situation should i apply loving kindness here compassion generosity what should i be doing here is this gamma how does gamma work how am i producing this situation is this my attachment that's causing this discontentedness what is it that's causing this discontentedness the mind starts thinking and pondering and kind of mulling over these teachings a bit and looking about how to apply them to any given situation and to what you're facing and because of this progress that the mind has made yeah there's this delight there's this joy there's this bliss there's this happiness all of this pleasantness is starting to come into the mind and the mind becomes very pleasant and joyful but also still experiencing this conditioned happiness as well so that's the first jhana okay then as you continue to practice if you don't get bogged down into craving the second jhana you don't get bogged into the pridefulness or arrogance of having attained the first jhana you don't become so enamored by the bliss that you just revel in it then if you just don't have those things and you just stay focused on the goal and be aware okay i'm in the first jhana but you stay focused on the goal then you can continue to practice continue to practice the eightfold path and meditation and everything that you've been doing that leads to the first jhana you just continue to do more of that bringing in the teachings more and more and more into your life there's nothing different that you have to do to get from the first or second jhana you just keep doing more of the same because now the teachings are coming together things are gelling really well you just keep doing more of the same and you will start moving into the second jhana what happens as the mind is moving into the second jhana is there is this subsiding of thinking and pondering there's less of it in the first jhana there's a lot of thinking and pondering but by the time you get to the second jhana and you're starting to head in that direction and the mind starts moving in that direction the thinking and pondering starts to subside because in the first jhana this is where the mind starts gathering deep wisdom there's lots of wisdom some people describe this as the third eye opening where the third eye starts opening and there's this deep wisdom that starts being gathered as a result of these teachings coming together that happens in the first jhana and this wisdom starts to permeate in the mind so the thinking and pondering starts to subside a little bit and you're not doing quite as much of it because the wisdom is now starting to be ingrained and permeating in the mind and because there's not as much thinking and pondering that's going on the mind starts getting this inner tranquility this oneness of mind when we're in the unenlightened state we talk about the conscious mind 
and we talk about the subconscious mind. And we talk about these as two separate things. And we talk about how we respond out of the conscious mind, but there's this subconscious that is kind of influencing things. And we don't always realize that this subconscious mind is there and kind of influencing our daily decisions. Well, by the time you get to the second jhana, the mind has now become one. There no longer is this subconscious mind influencing things in your daily life. The mind has become one. And you can see that very clearly. The Buddha describes it as oneness of mind. And the mind becomes very tranquil and it becomes concentrated. This is what we refer to as singleness of mind. And here, this is where you would really need to be practicing more and more singleness of mind, just doing one thing at a time, because you would like to increase your concentration more and more. By the time the mind fully moves into this second jhana, then the thinking and pondering is going to completely be eliminated. Because in that first jhana, and partially in the second jhana, you've done all this thinking and pondering, and the mind has acquired this wisdom. It's no longer so much effort to apply these teachings in daily life. It's starting to become easier and easier because this thinking and pondering has completely ceased. Right? That's what it means without thinking and pondering. Once the mind fully moves into this jhana. And it's the gradual increasing of this jhana becoming more and more prevalent. And once again, it's still filled with this delight and joy in the second jhana. So let me pause here before we talk about the next two and see if there's any questions on the first two jhanas. We have several questions, David. First, Michael would like to know. So I know those jhanas are mental states. So as we go up, are they permanent or can they be lost as well? The jhanas are not permanent. You can regress in these jhanas. And sometimes when people start moving into these jhanas, then they can actually experience things that they haven't experienced before and they can get a bit scared, especially if they're not working with a teacher as the mind starts becoming unraveled and they can actually intentionally regress, right? If somebody's not on this path and they don't understand the awakening of the mind, this is where people start seeking mental health care sometimes because you can actually by mistake or without even your awareness start moving into this first and second jhana you know the first jhana for sure this is where like a bipolar person might have hallucinations or delusions because the mind starts becoming unraveled where they're maybe practicing some of these teachings because what we've talked about so far is like things like right speech and right action and these type of teachings show up in Jesus's teachings. They show up in Prophet Muhammad's teachings, not maybe as clearly as what the Buddha said. But, you know, there can be people that are practicing these good, wholesome teachings and the mind starts to unravel on itself and people can then start getting hallucinations and delusions. And this is where people will oftentimes self-medicate and they will start taking alcohol or drugs or have sexual misconduct and as they do the mind will then start to regress and go 
out of these jhanas without them even realizing what the jhanas are. They may not even be on the Buddhist path. They might not even know the name of the Buddha that ever existed. And the cure here in their mind is to get the mind back to this point where what they felt was more stable and they might start using drugs and alcohol or sexual misconduct or other kind of uh, moral conduct that regresses the mind and that feels more comfortable for them because they're not comfortable with these jhanas because they're so new they're so different it doesn't feel quite right because they don't have the training and understanding of what these jhanas are there's nothing to be scared of here in terms of someone who's on the path and understands the path and understands these jhanas and is working with the teacher to progress through these jhanas and even in doing so yes you can progress even with your understanding and with working with a teacher it depends on your own initiative and your own application of effort to continue to progress through practicing the teachings and move through these jhanas you'll have a completely fine experience but the other thing that i'm adding here which we talk about in the group learning program around chapter 22 is how a lot of these mental conditions of depression and bipolar and schizophrenia and other things are actually the mind gradually awakening without the individual realizing what it is. They get scared, they get fearful, and then they get reverted back. And this is where medications of antipsychotic medications and antidepressants and some of these other drugs, they actually regress the mind and it actually traps it in the unenlightened state. If somebody really believes that they're mentally ill and they do that type of treatment, then it's going to trap the mind in the unenlightened state rather than understanding, just because they don't have access to the teachings, is understanding that this is a natural part of the mind awakening. And if they get help and guidance on this path, they can actually continue to walk forward and fully awaken the mind, get into the stages of enlightenment. So this is a part that you didn't ask about, Michael, but I was interested in adding it in because it's an important component to understand that if somebody's not well-versed in these teachings, getting into this first jhana can be such a surprise that it can be somewhat shocking to the individual. But because you're learning and understanding this, it won't be shocking for you. You'll just be like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. And even here in these jhanas, this is where people can start experiencing communication with other beings and other realms. And this is where bipolar and schizophrenia people have been told that they're mentally ill because they're hearing voices and they're seeing things that other people aren't seeing. But in reality, what it is, is it's actually the mind awakening starting to take on psychic powers and some other things that maybe perhaps these medical professionals aren't aware of or they don't know about, but the Buddha did. So as the mind awakens here, don't be surprised if you start getting communication from beings in the heavenly realm. Don't be surprised if you start getting communication with beings in the afflicted spirit realm or in the hell realm. If they take on more of a darkness then that's from the lower realms. If they take on more of a uplifting, encouraging, positive communication, then it's coming from the heavenly realm. So don't be surprised when these things start happening. You can also start observing past lives. 
when people get into these jhanas. And this is where, once again, if you're not aware of this, if people think they only have one life, but you start observing past lives, this can shake up the mind quite a bit for someone who doesn't have the training and understanding that there are past lives. Because when you start observing these experiences from your past lives, you might feel like you're going crazy if that's what someone has told you that's going on. But if you're working with somebody that understands this stuff and we're like, oh, that's completely normal. You're observing your past lives and that makes complete sense. You know, just continue to do what you're doing and this is impermanent and you'll eventually work your way through that. Or you start hearing voices from other realms. Oh yeah, that's just beings from other realms. Continue to progress, continue to meditate and work your way through this and your mind can remain stable moving through these jhanas. Johnny has a follow-up on this conversation. He's asking, should we get attached to these psychic experiences? No, absolutely not. This is something that we were talking about in our Saturday class just recently about how the Buddha described these psychic experiences and these extra special abilities that you may gain as part of your awakening. And the Buddha talked about how he doesn't practice them. He chooses not to practice them. If you do get attached to them, you're not going to progress any further. So as these beings from other realms start communicating with you, as you start being able to see the future and starting to be able to see the past, if you get attached to these things, the mind can get bogged down and it won't progress. You can get stuck. So while these things will happen, there'll be interesting experiences. They will confirm for you the things that the Buddha taught is 100% correct. As you start experiencing these things, you shouldn't allow the mind to hold on to them because your goal is full liberation, where the mind no longer has craving, desire, attachment for anything, including these special abilities that come into the mind. I have a question from Judith. In the first jhana, can there be unwholesome mental states, but one is unattached or detached from them? Yes, there'll be unwholesome mental states still when the mind's in the first jhana, but the mind starts separating itself and putting some distance between it and the unwholesome mental states. It has become aware of these unwholesome mental states and how there's danger in them and that it would like to eliminate these. They're still in there. The unwholesome mental states are still there, but the mind is starting to be able to see them almost from a distance and start to separate itself from them. And it starts more actively pursuing to eliminate these unwholesome mental states from the mind. Holly has a question. Are the jhanas mental states experienced during meditation or all the time in daily life? Both, all the time, Holly. So some people can move into these jhanas during meditation. So like as they're meditating, they can feel the bliss come in. Like first jhana, oftentimes people will ask me, they'll say, you know, I was in meditation and I got this extreme amount of bliss for like 10 seconds or 30 seconds and then it went away. And in the last month or two, I've really been wanting that feeling again, but I haven't been able to get it. And my reply to them is, well, that wanting and craving is the reason why you're not experiencing it. Because that craving to want that pleasurable experience of that first jhana is what makes the mind revert. So it's kind of like the light bulb comes on for 10 seconds or 30 seconds and then it goes off. 
So you kind of get this glimpse. Some people during meditation will get this glimpse of what the first jhana looks like. But then if the mind craves it right away, it'll go out. The light bulb will go out because craving comes in. Or if the ego comes in, aha, there's the first jhana. Look at me. I'm so wonderful. Boom, it'll go out. So if you're in meditation and you experience this first jhana, just remain unaffected. I describe it as standing in the middle of the rain naked and being unaffected by the rain. So think about if you were completely naked, standing in the middle of your street and it was pouring down raining and you were just calm and unaffected by the actual rain. But the mind's alert, it's attentive that it is raining. You're completely exposed, completely naked, but you're unaffected by all of this rain. So when you feel that bliss and you feel that joy or you feel that happiness, just be completely unaffected by it as if you're standing in the rain naked. And that will allow you to continue to walk forward. So it can happen in meditation where you experience it. But when the mind moves fully into the jhana, then you're going to be experiencing that relaxed, calm mind, yet attentive and alert all throughout the day. So it's not just during meditation, but that's oftentimes where people become aware of it or they'll get this glimpse of it in meditation oftentimes. So it's generally through meditation that one is primed for the jhana states, or is it through understanding the teachings generally? It's all of that coming together. Through all of that coming together, it kind of primes the mind to make this shift. And this is where people can experience a shift where you've been doing all of this work and then either in meditation or while you're outside of meditation, it's almost like for some people, boom, it's like somebody hit a light switch and there's this massive switch, this realization, right? And this is where people say, I've gone through awakening. Well, they're not quite understanding 100%. And if they're sharing it with everybody, then there's still pride and arrogance there. But nonetheless, people will equate this sudden realization where the mind all of a sudden becomes more alert and aware, yet calm. They'll associate that with awakening or they are now enlightened. But in reality, there's just been this big shift into the first jhana. And like I said, it can be sudden Or it can be kind of a gradual thing where the light kind of flickers for a while before you actually fully move into this first jhana. Is it possible at all to perhaps pass over one jhana onto the other or do they all occur in a linear fashion? They occur in a linear fashion, but depending on your practice, you can move through these jhanas fairly rapidly. It doesn't mean that you're in the first jhana for like many months or years before you get to the second. I mean, it can happen that way. But if you do what I'm sharing, which is don't be overly obsessed with the jhanas, don't crave each individual jhana, don't track, oh my goodness, what jhana am I in now? I'm in this one, I'm in that one. Let me go tell everybody that I got into the jhana. Oh, this bliss is so amazing. Let me get back to that bliss. If you get rid of all that stuff and you just stay focused on eliminating that craving, desire, attachment, focused on eliminating that anger, hatred, ill will, continue focused on building wisdom to eradicate the ignorance unknowing of true reality and just stay dedicated to your practice you may actually move through these 
somewhat readily where the mind actually experiences them just for a matter of weeks or a few months before you end up in the first stage of enlightenment. Because by the time you get to these four jhanas and you see this is like an indication, this is kind of like, you know, if the unenlightened mind is the red light and the enlightened mind is the green light, this is kind of like the yellow light. It's kind of like, hey, things are going kind of well here and things are cooking pretty good. So if you stay focused and dedicated and developing your practice and you're aware that the mind has moved into these jhanas, then the next step is start focusing on the 10 fetters so that you can move through these jhanas because you don't want to get bogged down in these jhanas as blissful as they feel, as good as they feel, if you stay remaining attached to central desires and you stay attached to those pleasant feelings that you're experiencing in the jhanas, then you're going to get bogged down in the jhanas because you're attached to that pleasant feeling. You've got to get to the point where you look past and beyond all of that, where you're looking for full liberation. And this is the time when the jhanas start coming on, when that yellow light comes on, is to now focus on the 10 fetters, which will ultimately, if you start eliminating those 10 fetters, will move you out of the jhanas and into the first stage of enlightenment. So the amount of time that the mind is in these jhanas is going to be different for each person. But if you stay focused on eliminating those 10 fetters, then you can just move right through these oftentimes fairly readily or fairly quickly. Okay. And so to clarify, it's not suggested that we're actively working toward jhanas, but they come with other parts of the practice and as we recognize them they're essentially signposts exactly james this is one of the questions that i sometimes get someone will say what do i got to do to get to the jhanas you know how do i get to the jhanas like what is the meditation i need to do to get to the jhanas they're just craving the jhanas and there's some people that even teach something called jhana meditation right and they say that this is what will get you to the jhanas but in reality to get to the jhanas what you've got to do is learn and practice the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts and breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, putting all these other things together. And by focusing on that, you will move through the jhanas. It will happen. And like you said, they're just signposts and indicators to you that all this other stuff is actually been well developed and being well applied. And it's an indication to you that aha, things are going fairly well, keep doing what you're doing, but now start focusing on the 10 fetters. Okay, thanks David. We have a question from Johnny. What is happening when a meditator believes they have reached a higher state, yet it has no qualities of alertness and attention? This is just arrogance, ego, pride, the unknowing of true reality, right? That ignorance, someone not knowing where they really are in the path. And most often these people don't have teachers if you talk to them they don't have teachers or they have a teacher who maybe isn't fully understanding themselves and maybe guiding them or maybe the student isn't seeking guidance from the teacher but oftentimes what i find is people who are very boisterous or claiming certain attainments they oftentimes don't have teachers at all and that's why that they don't understand that that pride, that arrogance, that ego is actually inhibiting them from experiencing something more profound and more permanent, which would be enlightenment. 
Okay, David, those are all the questions we have for now. All right, so let's talk about the third and fourth jhana then before we move into the other parts of right concentration. So the third jhana, there's going to be this fading away of the delight in this temporary fleeting happiness, right? That's going to start to fade away. And the mind is going to now start to experience the impossibility of becoming upset or excited, these two extremes. It's still going to experience some of the other discontentedness, but it's going to be tempered, right? You're not going to be experiencing these far extremes where there's this anger or rage or upsetness or this excitement and elation. The mind's going to kind of come down a bit and start to feel more tempered emotions where it's not going to dwell on either side. It's going to be more coming to the middle. It's not fine-tuned to the middle, but it's more coming close to the middle. And there's going to be this calmness, this serenity of mind, but it's not fully developed yet. There's awareness or mindfulness, right? Awareness of mind, where the mind becomes more clearly aware of what's going on around it. Oftentimes, people become very enamored with animals at this point, where they start to observe animals and start to feel like there's no separation between humans and animals. You know, we're all one in terms of all these different beings in the world, right? There's this tempering of this fleeting happiness, and now this unconditioned joy starts to come into the mind. It's not permanent, but you start getting glimpses of this unconditioned joy at various points in your day, or for maybe a week or two where the mind's experiencing this joy, but it's not yet enlightened. So then the discontentedness is going to come in and it's going to experience some temporary happiness or it's going to experience some frustration here and there, but it's going to be tempered. But you start getting glimpses and experiencing this unconditioned joy. And then the mind starts residing more in this equanimity, this evenness of mind, this evenness of temper, this ability to handle difficult situations with a more calm mind and having this awareness of mind or mindfulness. The fourth jhana, here the mind starts to let go and fully give up pleasure and pain. The mind no longer sees pleasure as pleasurable necessarily because they know it's fleeting, they know it's impermanent, and they start to separate themselves from this pleasure of finding pleasure in external things. The mind starts going more inward, even more so than it has been already, that it no longer latches on to these external conditions for pleasure. And because it's no longer latching on to these external conditions for pleasure more and more and more, it's starting to now also not experience pain as much. So it's starting to come even more into the middle, even more so than the third jhana. This temporary happiness or gladness, this temporary sadness or certain level of sadness completely disappears. Again, the mind is coming more and more into the middle. It's refining itself more and more and more. And here the Buddha describes that the fourth jhana is beyond pleasure and pain, 
right? Because one of the things that people oftentimes hear when I talk about enlightenment and discontentedness is about how we're eliminating these pleasant feelings, right? We're eliminating these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, and elation. Well, we're eliminating the mind's conditioning that it's conditioning these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, and elation on external things. The mind is still going to experience enjoyment. The mind's going to still be joyful. And the Buddha describes this as beyond pleasure and pain. I've described this as whatever you experience as you progress on this path, the benefits that you experience are greater than anything that you're leaving behind. So this conditioned happiness that you're leaving behind that's temporary is replaced more and more by this permanent joy, which is unconditioned. And that joy is beyond pleasure and pain, which is what the Buddha is sharing in his words. With equanimity, this complete evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations, and mindfulness come to be developed to fulfillment. In the third jhana, the mind is starting to reside in this equanimity and mindfulness. But by the time the mind fully gets into the fourth jhana, then this equanimity and awareness of mind comes to fulfillment. It's fully developed. And because of this progression of putting all these teachings together, the Buddha is describing it's beyond pleasure and pain, that you're no longer experiencing this temporary bliss that you did in the first jhana. It's now left that behind, and it's now more steadily, more calmly, more peacefully moving towards the first stage of enlightenment, having attained this fourth jhana. So let's see what questions you guys have here. We have a question from Judith on the third jhana. We no longer have delight, but we still have joy. What is the main difference between delight and joy? Is delight impermanent and joy permanent? Yes, that's correct. Judith, that's correct. That delight is conditioned pleasant feelings based on some condition. It's still discontentedness. So that's fading away where what starts to arise is this unconditioned joy that becomes permanent over time. It's not yet permanent when it's experiencing it in the jhanas because remember, there's always these gradual changes. We're gradually bringing down the unwholesome aspects of the mind. We're gradually arising these wholesome qualities of the mind, which means the discontentedness is gradually decreasing and these permanent mental qualities are gradually increasing. The mind is bouncing all over the place in the unenlightened state, experiencing these highs and lows, but now we're bringing it more and more and more into the middle, and it's gradually becoming more and more refined over the course of many months and years. Michael has a question on the fourth jhana. In the fourth jhana, one has given up pleasure and experienced the disappearance of former gladness. Does that mean joy is also gone? No, joy is what's going to be arising in the mind as the mind starts to move further and further on this path. What the mind is giving up in the fourth jhana is it's giving up this deep pleasure based on conditioned feelings, some kind of condition, and it's giving up this 
deep sadness and this pain associated with conditioned feelings. So the mind's coming more into the middle. Atula would like to know, if we yearn for jhana, then isn't it attachment? Yes, that's that yearning, that longing and strong eagerness. And that's why I've taken all this time to actually share this level of detail that I've been teaching online now for about a year. And this is the first time that I've gone into the jhanas to this level of depth because when I first started teaching, I wasn't interested in students yearning or longing for these jhanas. So we needed to get a lot of teachings underway so that people can start getting some progress. And now they start to understand what the jhanas are. But yeah, any kind of longing or any kind of strong eagerness or yearning is going to inhibit your progress. And you'll probably never get to the jhanas if you're yearning for the jhanas. Johnny would like to know where or how does insight or Vipassana fit into the jhanas? Vipassana, from what I understand, is a meditation that people use, and different people describe Vipassana in different ways. Depending on how you describe Vipassana, you might consider what I'm going to share next as Vipassana, or maybe not. I've never been to a Vipassana retreat myself. What people tell me is that the first few days they do something very similar, or actually what I teach as breathing mindfulness meditation, and then they move into body scanning, and then maybe even loving kindness meditation. So I teach the breathing mindfulness meditation and the loving kindness meditation, but I don't teach the body scanning. But if that's helping people and people find benefit in it, then I'm pleased for them. But what right concentration is really all about, which we're going to get to on the next slide, is it's all about meditation and training the mind in meditation to acquire this concentration. So these jhanas are essentially a byproduct of having learned and practiced all the teachings through the Eightfold Path and particularly meditation. Meditation is going to help move the mind in the direction of the jhanas, but you couldn't just meditate your way to the jhanas. So if somebody was meditating, 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 but they were going out into the world harming people, they were being harsh and aggressive with their speech, they were killing or stealing or having sexual misconduct, gambling, all these other things that are part of the Eightfold Path, it doesn't matter how much Vipassana or any other kind of meditation that we might do, they're not going to get to the jhanas. So meditation is an important component of this path, but it's important to understand it's not the entire path. So that's why if somebody says they're going to do meditation just to get to the jhanas, that's just one component of it. You actually need all these other pieces in order to progress and observe these milestones or these signposts that these jhanas are occurring. So David, as we study the teachings, we gain an intellectual understanding. Is it appropriate to say that the jhanas provide an experiential understanding of the teachings? It helps you to know that things are moving along. You should already have been experiencing benefits so when you learn something like right speech, for example, and you're bringing your practice up closer and closer to right speech, you're noticing through experience that, wow, I used to always have so much trouble when I talked to that coworker or when I talked to that neighbor, but it was just so easy because now I've been practicing this right speech. And then each subsequent conversation gets easier and easier because this neighbor or this coworker starts to realize 
that every time you talk to them, you're polite, you're kind, you're friendly, you're respectful, you're practicing all those five factors, even though they don't know what the five factors are, perhaps, but it's the natural law of gamma. That's why it works, even for people that don't understand. But the more you practice right speech, you get this experiential learning of seeing how your conversations go more smoothly. You start getting this experience of more and more people at work are interested in talking to you. More and more people are interested in getting your opinion on things. More and more people uh, come to you for advice about things. You're able to handle things in a much more smooth way because of this equanimity. So you get that experience before you ever get to the jhanas and you, and you gain wisdom along the way. And it's the accumulation of all of those experiences and wisdom that now the mind starts experiencing these various qualities, these various aspects that kind of show that the mind's moving through these various phases. Okay, David, those are all the questions we have for now. All right. I've already covered what we put here at the bottom of the slide, which is, I'll just read it for you guys if you're having trouble reading it, is the jhanas are an indication that everything is coming together and moving in the right direction. Use these as a personal guide but remain focused on elimination of the ten fetters and the ultimate goal of enlightenment as an arahant, which is the fourth stage of enlightenment. So as you start getting these indications that the mind is moving into these jhanas, keep doing everything that you have been doing, but now start focusing on the ten fetters, which is what we're going to talk about next Sunday. We're going to talk about those next Sunday. Okay, so let's move to the next piece of what I'm sharing, what you need to do in order to actually move into these jhanas in addition to all the other aspects of the path that we've been talking about, this right concentration, this aspect of the path is all about cultivating the mind to develop this singleness of mind and breathing mindfulness meditation, which we practice on Wednesdays and I teach you on Wednesdays, is this step of right concentration because you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment, and you're cultivating mindfulness or awareness of mind. We're practicing in this step of the Eightfold Path loving kindness meditation, which is to eliminate hatred, anger, ill will, and arise loving kindness or active goodwill towards all beings. And there's other specialized meditations as well that are used on kind of an as-needed basis. So by learning and practicing these meditations, you're starting to develop and train the mind in meditation. But then, like we've talked about, you've got to move this development of the mind and these benefits that you're acquiring in meditation. You need to move it outside of meditation through your daily life. That's why I call this book Developing a Life Practice, right? Because you need to develop this eightfold path as your life practice that includes meditation, but other things as well. So by you learning these meditations, doing them daily two or three times a day, then the mind gradually gets moved closer and closer and closer to these jhanas, to right concentration, to singleness of mind. But if all you did was meditated and you didn't practice singleness of mind in your daily life, you're not going to be able to develop singleness of mind. 
So if in breathing mindfulness meditation, you're training to focus only on the breath, but then you're watching TV, you're talking to your friend and you're eating all at the same time, or you're watching TV and eating at the same time, or you're doing multiple things and you're trying to do these multiple things at one time, you're not practicing singleness of mind outside of meditation. So maybe for 20 or 30 minutes during meditation, you're practicing singleness of mind, but there's a whole nother 23 and a half hours of the day that you're not practicing right concentration. So you've got to be practicing right concentration all throughout your day. And what your mind will hopefully come to understand is that your mind actually can't do more than one thing at a time. The mind can only actually do one thing at a time. You're either talking on the phone, watching TV, or you're eating a sandwich. You're not actually doing all three at the same time. What you're doing is you're actually rapidly moving the mind from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. You're doing them so quick and so rapidly that you think you're doing all three at the same time and you think you're being more productive. But when we get off the phone, we actually realize that we didn't have the best conversation with that person. We didn't take in the content from the TV and understand it in the best way. And we didn't fully digest the sandwich. So now we've got stomach pains. So actually that hour that we were doing that was actually a complete waste. And now we've got to spend more time circling back with our friend, apologizing because they realized that they didn't have our full attention. We've now lost the opportunity to gain the content from that television program that we were watching. So we really didn't learn what we needed to learn there. And now we're dealing with this stomach pain and we can't go outside for a walk or perhaps we can't go spend time with our friends or go work because our stomach is hurting, right? So we actually end up causing ourselves more problems. And that's what it means to understand this path is that the more you understand this path and all the various details of the path, understanding the wisdom, now you can function in the world and you can just more seamlessly and easily get things accomplished in your life. By doing one thing at a time, you're actually going to be more productive. So you need to develop this daily meditation practice as part of right concentration, which right now, because I'm gradually building you guys up, is just breathing mindfulness meditation. But next month, we're going to be adding in loving kindness meditation. And then as you guys talk to me privately, there's other meditations on an as needed basis, like elimination of sexual cravings. There's a specialized meditation for that, but it's not something that I openly really teach as a normal part of our Wednesday classes. I will teach it when we get to chapter 11, but in terms of doing it every day or doing it every Wednesday, we don't do that as a group because not everybody needs it, but the people who do need it really need that. And it really helps you to kind of temper your cravings for sexual contact and bring your conduct into being more wholesome with just one partner or if you're deciding to eliminate sexual contact altogether, maybe eliminate it altogether. So there's these specialized meditations that we use on kind of an as needed basis. You can almost think of the Buddhist teachings as like medicine for the mind. And the teacher is like kind of like the doctor or the nurse practitioner that as we understand our students' minds and you guys sharing what challenges and what struggles you're having in life, 
we can selectively give you the medicine for that, right? Because in these classes, we teach very broadly and very generally, but then as you talk on a one-on-one -on -one basis or you ask questions in class, then we can give you the very specific things that you need as part of this path to remedy the certain situation that you're encountering. So putting all this together is, okay, now that we've talked for three sessions now, how do we put all this together and make our way on this path? What do we actually do? Well, to develop your life practice on this path that leads to enlightenment, what you should be doing and what I will help you do and support you and guide you in doing throughout this entire program. As we start with chapter one and go through this whole entire book, we're going to slowly build you up where you learn, reflect, and practice the three universal truths. We've already discussed that in a previous session, but we're going to discuss it again because it's one of those teachings that you need to hear multiple times and you need to understand and you need to be practicing. So this particular part of the course is just to give you an overview, but we're going to come back and revisit this and we're going to spend one entire class session talking about the three universal truths and this next one, which is the four noble truths. We're going to spend just one class session on that. And then we'll probably mention it at different times throughout the program, ensuring that you gain a deep understanding of this as you progress on your path and you progress in your practice. Because you need to learn, reflect, and practice the Four Noble Truths very deeply along with the Three Universal Truths to establish right view. So we're going to spend some more time on this. And not only in class, but you have the ability to ask questions in our Facebook group, to reach out in class asking questions or to schedule a private personal appointment with me where we can talk privately if that's something you need help on. Then you also need to learn, reflect, and practice each individual component of the Eightfold Path. So in Chapter 5, we're going to once again revisit this entire path. What I've done here by breaking it down into three individual class sessions, we're going to revisit it again in chapter five and talk about it in one session because that's the gradual training to allow it to gradually soak into the mind. And then as we go throughout our program here, there might be certain times on Wednesdays where I choose to just focus on right speech and only right speech along with our meditation that we do on Wednesdays. Or I might choose to focus on another aspect of the path in one of our Wednesday classes because we need to gradually bring these teachings into the mind and it can't just be teach it once, you learn it and practice it. It doesn't work that way. You're going to need gradual training. So we're going to be re revisiting this Eightfold Path in different ways throughout the program. And then we're also going to be learning, reflecting, and practicing the five precepts. This is in Chapter 7. The five precepts are going to help you more fully understand the Eightfold Path because the five precepts encompass and are integrated into the Eightfold Path as part of right speech and as part of right action. And what you've learned so far and what you will learn in Chapter 5 about the Eightfold Path is kind of just one layer of understanding right speech and right action. 
by the time we get to the five precepts, we're going to now really expand upon this right speech and right action and really looking at it in detail through the five precepts. Then you also need to be learning, reflecting, and practicing your meditation. You need to develop this meditation practice, which we're going to be doing each Wednesday, but you need to be doing that on your own outside of class, where once, twice, three times a day, building up more and more to two or three times a day, where you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. That's the work that you need to be doing on your own, and you're coming to class in order to get help, to get guidance, and to get insight about your practice and ask questions about what's going on in your practice because this is an independent journey that you need to have your own initiative, you need to have energy, you need to apply your own discipline because nobody is going to force you to attain enlightenment. It's not possible. You have to make the good wholesome choices to learn and practice these these classes are for you to gain insight and then you take what you learn from these classes and you implement it into your daily life. And then as you put all of that together, what will gradually happen over time is you will start to experience the jhanas as we just outlined and discussed today. And at that point, as the mind starts experiencing the jhanas, then focus on eliminating the 10 fetters and be sure that you never, ever, ever give up because the option is to remain with this discontent mind where it experiences all this anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, all of that other stuff, or just never give up and continue to progress on this path more and more and more where you'll experience more and more benefits. And even if you don't attain enlightenment in this life, you will have learned these teachings in this life. And if there is rebirth, those teachings will be more readily accessible and you'll be able to more easily move into the teachings in your next life if you are reborn. Some of you guys, maybe all of you guys, actually did learn these teachings in a previous life. Maybe you were a being that learned these teachings in a previous life. And now you're finding it more easy to learn them in this life. And having found this class and finding this teacher, finding these resources, you're finding it a bit easier for you because you've already maybe potentially attained the first stage of enlightenment in your last life. But the way that this cycle of rebirth works is even if you attain the first stage of enlightenment in your last life, being reborn into this life, you don't start where you finished. You actually start with an unenlightened mind, but what people will find is it becomes more easy to move into these teachings and actually gain the benefit of these teachings through learning and practicing in this new life. So if you don't attain enlightenment in this life for some reason, it will surely benefit you in your future rebirth that you'll have a better rebirth in the future. And potentially you have learned and practiced these and that's why you're now finding it a bit easier perhaps to now get into these teachings and actually learn them in this life. So don't ever give up because everything that you learn and everything that you practice is going to benefit you in this life and potentially some future existence if that's what ends up happening. 
So that's everything that I had planned to discuss with you today. I'll just open things up to any remaining questions that you guys might have as a result of what we shared in today's class. Okay, we have a question from Judith. What is the difference between meditating, focusing on the breath, or chanting, if we are concentrating on the breath, be it silent or with sound? The goal of breathing mindfulness meditation is to let go of craving, desire, attachment, where the mind holds on to things. So if you're just focusing purely on the breath and only the breath, then you're training the mind to let go of all these other things and training it to come into the present moment because the breath is the present moment. If there's music playing in the background while you're trying to do that, then the mind is still holding on. It's still holding on and craving and desiring and attempting to hold on to this music rather than just let it go. Because the problem that the Buddha discovered is how the mind longs or craves through these six senses, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the bodily contact in the mind. So if the mind is requiring or attached to this music during meditation, it's still looking for pleasant feelings in the ears. It's not comfortable with just being satisfied with what is. So if there's a loud noise or there's nature in the background or some other kind of noise that's happening as you're meditating, you've got to train the mind to just be comfortable with that and be satisfied with what is rather than introduce music, which is you deciding this is the sound, this is the pleasant sound that I like during my meditation and I want this sound during my meditation. That's the mind still being attached to music. It doesn't mean you can't ever meditate with music, but if I was you, I would get at least 80 or 90% of my practice to the point where you're not meditating with anything other than the body, the mind, and the breath. And you develop the mind in that way that it just needs the body, the mind, and the breath. Because if you allow the, your mind to make the decision that it's always going to play this music during meditation, then you're not giving it that time to just be satisfied with what is and focus on the breath. We have a question from Michael. David, do you say or remind yourself with mental notes, like for instance, reading, reading, to help train yourself with singleness of mind? Yes and no. There was definitely a period of time where I was really actively working to develop singleness of mind. And I would notice that, for example, like if I was reading that the mind would go somewhere else and I would just tell the mind, okay, you're reading, just read, read, you're reading, now read, right? And I would have to talk to the mind that way in order to, to get it refocused. And then I would stop doing that and I would just focus on reading. Or if I was walking and I was noticing that the mind was wandering all over the place, I would have to tell the mind, walking, 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 right? And I would just tell myself that as I was walking. But once you do that for enough times, and it could be months that you need to do that for, everybody's different. There's no harm in doing that. But eventually, you would like to get to the point where that fades out and you no longer need that, where you can just sit down, open the book, and you can read. Or you can just walk down the street for a stroll, and the mind is just in the present moment, not thinking about the past and the future. So 
The answer is yes, I have done those things in the past and it was very helpful, but eventually you would like to get to the point where those things are no longer needed and you slowly fade those out. With that said, James and Michael, don't do that prematurely, right? Because if the mind knows that it needs to phase this out and it craves to phase this out and it equates phasing out this reading, reading, reading with progress, then perhaps you do that prematurely and the mind's like all over the place. So use it, do it as you need it and when you need it, but just know that it's not something that you need to do or that you will do permanently. Okay, Sarah's question is, I'm searching for a Buddhist meditation teacher in my city to help me with my meditation practice, but there are not many places here where I could go. There are either places for Tibetan Buddhism or for Zen. What suits better with the teaching we are learning here? Is it even possible to say? I don't want to mix things up, but I feel like having the possibility to go to a place regularly in person may be helpful for me. All I could really say is is try it, right? Because I don't know what is being offered at those various venues of Mahayana or Zen teachings. You just have to see what's there. And depending on what they're practicing, if you're learning with the book that I share and you're learning in the classes that I'm sharing, you're learning what the Buddhist path is. And sometimes going into environments where there are rites and rituals or there are people talking about this mystical, magical gamma, or they're talking about praying to the Buddha or these other things that we know aren't part of the Buddhist path. It can sometimes be helpful for you because you can identify like, aha, I understand they're sharing that information. I know that that's not part of the Buddhist teachings, but I'm just going to sit here and politely listen and allow my mind to be trained to be comfortable with that. And even though you know something that perhaps the others aren't aware of, maintaining your mental discipline to not speak up and say something is potentially a good practice for you. Or maybe speaking up and saying, you know, well, I understand what you're sharing is that karma is this mystical, magical thing that's this punishment and rewards. But from my experience, this is what I've understood karma to be how do you feel about that, right? And that can actually be a good practice for you to go into some of these environments that aren't necessarily Theravada Buddhist teachings or based on the Pali Canon because you can train your mind to either be quiet and not say anything at all or it can train your mind to actually speak up and kind of ask the teacher privately or publicly what these things are and see what their thoughts are. And even though you have already seen the truth, not trying to convince that teacher that you know the truth, but the training is there of learning how to talk to somebody that you disagree with and that they have a difference of an opinion than you and learning how to have that conversation with the five factors of well-spoken speech can be very beneficial for the mind. So I encourage people to go out and experience some of these various venues, but if you can find a place that is teaching Theravada Buddhist teachings, they're going to be more close to what it is that I'm teaching. But even in those venues, you might see various teachers that have been influenced by various things where even here in Thailand in the Theravada Buddhist temples, you'll see them doing things that aren't part of the Buddhist teachings. And I've 
done that situation where I've walked up to a Theravada Buddhist monk and I've politely asked him after the people left, I said, you know, what you were doing there, I've never, you know, whatever I said, you know, I can't remember exactly, but I didn't observe that as being part of the Buddhist teachings. I was just curious, you know, why is it that you offer that? And pretty much every time I've ever talked to a monk about these kind of things, the reply from the monk is, yes, I know these aren't part of the Buddhist teachings. I only do them because the people want them. And they actually know themselves. So there's only been maybe two, three, four experiences where I've talked to Buddhist monks that were actually doing things that weren't the Buddhist teachings. And they actually confirmed themselves that they already knew, but they were just doing it because the people showed up and they were asking for these things. If it was me in that situation, I would try to teach the person about how what they're asking for isn't part of the Buddhist teachings. But sometimes the way that people function is the easier thing is just to give them what they want and maybe help them extinguish their craving, perhaps. I'm not sure their justification of why they do it other than they're just doing it because the person has asked for it. But just be aware that even in Theravada communities, you are probably going to find things that aren't necessarily the teachings of the Buddha. I've been to probably about 200 different temples throughout the world, and I've only ever been to one temple that I saw that was what I would consider doing things the way that the Buddha taught to the point that they don't even have statues of the Buddha at their temple because the Buddha never taught that, right? So every other temple that I've been at has always got statues or rites and rituals or ceremonies, things like this going on. So the more likely than not, if I visited over 200 and I've only ever been to one that didn't do those things, you're going to encounter in your community places that are doing things that aren't based on the Pali Canon 100%. And that's just the impermanence of it. And it can actually strengthen your practice. So you can still go to those places and perhaps gain benefit from doing so by you focusing on your practice of how can I use this situation to improve my practice of either just sitting here and say nothing by politely and kindly talking with someone that I disagree with and seeing if I'm able to do that politely and kindly to all the way potentially even talking to a monk and seeing if they understand what it is that you would learn. So these things can all be beneficial if you're practicing every moment. And then the other thing that I will add to that is, yes, face-to-face contact is outstanding and really, really helpful for us to have. But in lieu of that, if you would like to reach out to me in this class, you've got that ability that you can attend these classes Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday. And you can also schedule appointments with me privately And these things can also help you to progress. So it can actually help train your mind to not be attached to physical contact. Because if the mind only views learning Buddhist teachings through physical contact and face-to-face interaction and being part of a community, it can actually be very beneficial for the mind to find, in addition to that, find this other way to now reach out and it can train the mind like, aha, yeah, I can go to these venues and I can learn face to face, but I can also learn this way too. And then that helps train the mind more and more and more to let go. doesn't mean you still won't go do it because an attachment isn't that you stop doing a certain activity. Just stopping to do an activity 
doesn't mean the attachment's eliminated. It's how the mind relates to it. So if the mind views personal interaction as the only way to learn Buddhist teachings, then coming to these classes like you are and reaching out for personal guidance can help to eliminate, if there is, any attachment to physical contact. Michael has a question. Do you recommend closing our senses, for example, our eyes, when doing something like listening so we can focus better? Basically, closing some of our senses to focus better. You can. This can be one of the ways that you practice guarding your doorways to discontentedness is that during this period of time where the mind is transitioning, and particularly when you get into these jhanas and the mind becomes very aware, it can almost be like overstimulation sometimes because you're so aware of the discontentedness and you're so aware of the craving through these six senses that sometimes, yeah, just closing your eyes and listening can actually be really beneficial whether it's in person or on the phone or in classes or things like that. Because if you can shut down the doorways, then it can help you to minimize what's being drawn into the mind and thus maximize the concentration. That might be how the mind transitions. But over time, you need to get more and more comfortable and train the mind to be comfortable with having the eyes open and being able to take in stimulus and still be focused and concentrated. Because if every single conversation you were in, you had your eyes closed, that would be quite challenging. But that might be what you need to do in any one particular moment just to go inward and really develop that singleness of mind and that concentration. And you can use that to your advantage. And that can be really helpful for you as you progress on this path. Okay, David, we have no more questions. I did want to point out that we had quite a few comments about how beneficial this and the past few classes have been. And I think that's a great reminder of how important the Eightfold Path is and how much it extends to all the rest of the teachings. And I can certainly echo how beneficial it's been. Yeah, for sure. I really like this new format. What I was doing in the past two group learning programs that I taught over the last year, two iterations, is we would just start at chapter one. And it didn't quite feel right just starting there. So I decided for this third group learning program to do what I'm doing now, which is start with the five hindrances, then go to the three sessions of the Eightfold Path. And then next week, we're going to be studying the 10 fetters the four stages of enlightenment in the seven factors of enlightenment. So by doing it this way, you get a really nice look over the entire path that the Buddha laid out for us. So now when we start at chapter one in March, you kind of plug in what we're going to be progressing through the book into what we've already been learning in this kind of beginning part of the group learning program. And you're going to get a refresher of the Eightfold Path about six, seven weeks from now. We're going to be talking about the Eightfold Path again after you've been able to take some of what we've been talking about and put into practice. There's going to be things that got dropped off that the mind just didn't retain and it didn't remember. And that's where we'll revisit it in about six, seven weeks from now through you reading the book each week, reading the chapter. And through coming to class on Sunday, we'll have these talks. And then on Wednesday, we'll be practicing 
meditation, either breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation. And then eventually I'll start sharing the Buddhist chanting for those of you guys that would like to learn the Buddhist chanting. So thank you for your feedback. I'm glad to hear that these classes have been beneficial for you. I'm very pleased to be able to offer these to you. This is what I do every day, all day. I'm sharing the teachings of the Buddha in one way or another, whether it's with my son and my wife or our neighbors or the children in the village who are having troubles and they come over to our house and we help them understand the Buddha's teachings here in our village, whether it's me going to the temple here in Chiang Mai in order to share an in-person class or teach a retreat or whether it's online in these classes, whether it's a personal discussion that a student has scheduled, whether it's me posting into the Facebook groups and helping people learn the Buddhist teachings. This is what I do and I'm making myself available for you and you just decide to reach out and get help and engage in any of these ways. I've tried to make these teachings accessible in as many ways as possible. Podcast, YouTube channel, Facebook group, online classes, a book, an audio book, personal guidance, in-person classes, all of these different ways. And, you know, I'm contributing and providing effort to share. And wherever you feel you learn best, you just decide. Is it the podcast? Is it the online class? Is it the YouTube channel? Is it the reading? Is it the audio book? Is it the personal guidance? most likely it's a combination of all of these things right and it's and you decide where to use these various resources at different times to develop your life practice because this path is all about you it's all about you choosing to reach out and seek guidance and learn and these teachings are available for you and as you choose to reach out then you'll be able to engage in all of these different ways so Thank you for choosing to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha because the more that all of us choose to learn and practice these teachings and bring them into our life, it improves the condition of our mind. It helps those people that are close to us. And by doing that, it also helps all of humanity because by us causing less and less harm in the world through practicing these teachings, the world becomes a more peaceful, more kinder place to exist. When we were off of this path, and none of us even knew perhaps what the Buddha was, we were just going around causing untold amounts of harm because we just didn't know. We just didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't understand what we didn't understand. But by you taking the time to dedicate to learn and practice, this is the most unselfish thing you could ever do. This is the most loving, kind, and compassionate thing you could ever do is to improve the condition of your mind. Because by you improving the condition of your mind, it means you're causing less harm in the world. So the people around you are benefiting more and more and more. And by all of us doing this together, but yet individually, taking the individual responsibility to do it, we're actually bringing and restoring the Buddhist teachings back into the world. Because here in Thailand, here in Asia, the Buddhist teachings are permeating everywhere. I mean, I can throw a rock and hit 10 or 20 temples here in Chiang Mai. They're, they're everywhere. You know, you can drive down the street and see Buddhist monks all over the place. The teachings are permeating here. 
for the last 800 to 1200 years. But in our culture, whether it's Spain or the United States of America or the UK or South America, Africa, Australia, all these other places throughout the world, in Europe, in Russia, we don't have these teachings that have permeated into our culture the way that they have here. Because here, they just happen to be that much closer to where the Buddha actually lived during his lifetime. So the teachings reached here a lot sooner. But now we're at a unique time in the world where travel is very easy for people to travel throughout the world, for information via the internet to travel throughout the world. We've got this language of English that all of us are able to talk in a universal language that now by us learning and practicing these teachings, they come into the world more and more and more. So that's why I thank you at the beginning and end of each class for learning and practicing these teachings. So have a really wonderful rest of your day and I'll see you either next Sunday, Wednesday or Saturday. Have a really wonderful day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.